Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 32. Mrs. Belden's Narrative. It will be a year next July since I first saw Mary Leavenworth. I was living at that time a most monotonous existence, loving what was beautiful, hating what was sordid, drawn by nature towards all that was romantic and uncommon, but doomed by my straitened position and the loneliness of my widowhood to spend my days in the weary round of plain sewing. I had begun to think that the shadow of a humdrum old age was settling down upon me, when one morning, in the full tide of my dissatisfaction, Mary Leavenworth stepped across the threshold of my door and, with one smile, changed the whole tenor of my life. This may seem exaggeration to you, especially when I say that her errand was simply one of business, she having heard I was handy with my needle. But if you could have seen her as she appeared that day, marked the look with which she approached me, and the smile with which she left, you would pardon the folly of a romantic old woman who beheld a fairy queen in this lovely young lady. The fact is, I was dazzled by her beauty and her charms. And when, a few days after, she came again, and crouching down on the stool at my feet, said she was so tired of the gossip and tumult down at the hotel that it was relief to run away and hide with someone who would let her act like the child she was, I experienced for the moment, I believe, the truest happiness of my life. Meeting her advances with all the warmth her manner invited, I found her ere long listening eagerly while I told her, almost without my own volition, the story of my past life in the form of an amusing allegory. The next day saw her in the same place, and the next, always with the eager, laughing eyes and the fluttering, uneasy hands that grasped everything they touched and broke everything they grasped. But the fourth day she was not there, nor the fifth, nor the sixth, and I was beginning to feel the old shadow settling back upon me, when one night, just as the dusk of twilight was merging into evening gloom, she came stealing in at the front door and, creeping up to my side, put her hands over my eyes with such a low, ringing laugh that I started. "'You don't know what to make of me,' she cried, throwing aside her cloak and revealing herself in the full splendor of evening attire. "'I don't know what to make of myself, though it seems folly. I felt that I must run away and tell someone that a certain pair of eyes have been looking into mine, and that for the first time in my life I feel myself a woman as well as a queen. 
and with a glance in which coyness struggled with pride, she gathered up her cloak round her and laughingly cried, "'Have you had a visit from a flying sprite? "'Has one little ray of moonlight "'found its way into your prison for a wee moment, "'with Mary's laugh and Mary's snowy silk "'and flashing diamonds? Say.' "'And she patted my cheek and smiled so bewilderingly "'that even now, with all the dull horror "'of these after-events crowding upon me, "'I cannot but feel something like tears "'spring to my eyes at the thought of it. "'And so the prince has come for you,' I whispered, "'alluding to a story I had told her "'the last time she had visited me, "'a story in which a girl who had waited all her life "'in rags and degradation for the lordly knight "'who was to raise her from a hovel to a throne, "'died, just as her one lover, an honest peasant lad, "'whom she had discarded in her pride, "'arrived at her door with the fortune "'he had spent all his days in amassing for her sake. "'But at this she flushed and drew back towards the door. "'I don't know. I'm afraid not. "'I I don't think anything about that. "'Princes are not so easily won,' she murmured. "'What? Are you going?' I said. "'And alone? Let me accompany you.' "'But she only shook her fairy head and replied, "'No, no. That would be spoiling the romance, indeed. "'I have come upon you like a sprite,' and like a sprite I will go. And flashing like the moonbeam she was, she glided out into the night and floated away down the street. When she next came, I observed a feverish excitement in her manner, which assured me, even plainer than the coy sweetness displayed in our last interview, that her heart had been touched by her lover's attentions. Indeed, she hinted as much before she left "'saying in a melancholy tone, "'when I had ended my story in the usual happy way, "'with kisses and marriage, I shall never marry, "'finishing the exclamation with a long-drawn sigh "'that somehow emboldened me to say, "'perhaps because I knew she had no mother. "'And why? "'What reason can there be for such rosy lips "'saying their possessor will never marry?' "'She gave me one quick look,' "'and then dropped her eyes. "'I feared I had offended her "'and was feeling very humble "'when she suddenly replied "'in an even but low tone, "'I said I should never marry "'because the one man who pleases me "'can never be my husband. "'All the hidden romance in my nature "'started at once into life. "'Why not? "'What do you mean? "'Tell me.' "'There is nothing to tell,' said she, "'Only I've been so weak as to,' she would not say, "'fall in love. She was a proud woman. "'Admire a man whom my uncle will never allow me to marry.' "'And she rose as if to go, but I drew her back. "'Whom your uncle will not allow you to marry,' I repeated. "'Why? Because he is poor? "'No, uncle loves money, but not to such an extent as that. "'Besides, Mr. Clavering is not poor,' "'He is the owner of a beautiful place in his own country. "'Own country?' I interrupted. "'Is he not an American?' "'No,' she returned. "'He's an Englishman.' "'I did not see why she need say that in just the way she did, "'but supposing she was aggravated by some secret memory, "'went on to inquire, "'Then what difficulty can there be? "'Isn't he?' 
I was going to say steady, but refrained. He is an Englishman, she emphasized in the same bitter tone as before. In saying that, I say it all. Uncle will never let me marry an Englishman. I looked at her in amazement. Such a puerile reason as this had never entered my mind. He has an absolute mania on the subject, resumed she. I might as well ask him to allow me to drown myself as to marry an Englishman. A woman of truer judgment than myself would have said, Then, if that is so, why not discard from your breast all thought of him? Why dance with him and talk to him and let your admiration develop into love? But I was all romance then and angry at a prejudice I could neither understand nor appreciate. I said, But that is mere tyranny. Why should he hate the English so? And why, if he does, should you feel yourself obliged to gratify him in a whim so unreasonable? Why shall I tell you, Auntie? she said, flushing and looking away. Yes, I returned. Tell me everything. Well, then, if you want to know the worst of me, as you already know the best, I hate to incur my uncle's displeasure, because, because I've always been brought up to regard myself as his heiress, and I know that if I were to marry contrary to his wishes, he would instantly change his mind and leave me penniless. But, I cried, my romance a little dampened by this admission, you tell me Mr. Clavering has enough to live upon, so you would not want, and if you love... Her violet eyes fairly flashed in her amazement. You don't understand, she said. Mr. Clavering is not poor, but uncle is rich. I shall be a queen. There she paused, trembling and falling on my breast. Oh, it sounds mercenary, I know, but it is the fault of my bringing up. I have been taught to worship money. I would be utterly lost without it, and yet, her whole face softening with the light of another emotion, I cannot say to Henry Clavering, go, my prospects are dearer to me than you. I cannot, oh, I cannot. You love him, then, said I, determined to get at the truth of the matter, if possible. She rose restlessly. Isn't that a proof of love? If you knew me, you would say it was. And turning, she took her stand before a picture that hung on the wall of my sitting-room. That looks like me, she said. It was one of a pair of good photographs I possessed. Yes, I remarked. That is why I prize it. She did not seem to hear me. She was absorbed in gazing at the exquisite face before her. That is a winning face, I heard her say. "'sweeter than mine. "'I wonder if she would ever hesitate "'between love and money. "'I do not believe she would, "'her own countenance growing gloomy and sad "'as she said so. "'She would think only of the happiness "'she would confer. "'She is not hard like me. "'Eleanor herself would love this girl. "'I think she had forgotten my presence, "'for at the mention of her cousin's name "'she turned quickly round "'with a half-suspicious look, "'saying lightly, "'My dear old Mama Hubbard looks horrified. "'She did not know she had such a very unromantic little wretch for a listener "'when she was telling all those wonderful stories "'of love-slaying dragons and living in caves "'and walking over burning plowshares "'as if they were tufts of spring grass. "'No,' I said, taking her 
with an irresistible impulse of admiring affection into my arms. But if I had, it would have made no difference. I should still have talked about love, and of all it can do to make this weary workaday world sweet and delightful. Would you? Then you do not think me such a wretch. What could I say? I thought her the winsomest being in the world, and frankly told her so. Instantly, she brightened into her very gayest self. Not that I thought then, much less do I think now, she partially cared for my good opinion. But her nature demanded admiration, and unconsciously blossomed under it as a flower under the sunshine. And you will still let me come and tell you how bad I am, that is, if I go on being bad, as I doubtless shall to the end of the chapter, you will not turn me off. I will never turn you off. Not if I should do a dreadful thing, not if I should run away with my lover some fine night and leave uncle to discover how his affectionate partiality had been requited. It was lightly said and lightly meant, for she did not even wait for my reply. But its seed sank deep into our two hearts for all that, and for the next few days I spent my time in planning how I should manage, if it should ever fall to my lot, to conduct to a successful issue so enthralling a piece of business as an elopement. You may imagine, then, how delighted I was, when one evening Hannah, this unhappy girl who was now lying dead under my roof, and who was occupying the position of lady's maid to Miss Mary Leavenworth at that time, came to my door with a note from her mistress, running thus. Have the loveliest story of the season ready for me tomorrow, and let the prince be as handsome as, as someone you have heard of, and the princess as foolish as your little yielding pet, Mary. Which short note could only mean that she was engaged? But the next day did not bring me my Mary, nor the next, nor the next, and beyond hearing that Mr. Leavenworth had returned from his trip, I received neither word nor token. Two more days dragged by, when, just as twilight set in, she came. It had been a week since I had seen her, but it might have been a year from the change I observed in her countenance and expression. I could scarcely greet her with any show of pleasure. She was so unlike her former self. "'You are disappointed, are you not?' said she, looking at me. "'You expected revelations, whispered hopes, "'and all manner of sweet confidences. "'And you see, instead, a cold, bitter woman, "'who for the first time in your presence "'feels inclined to be reserved and uncommunicative. "'That is because you have had more to trouble "'than encourage you in your love,' I returned, "'though not without a certain shrinking, "'caused more by her manner than words. "'She did not reply to this, but rose, and paced the floor coldly at first, but afterwards with a certain degree of excitement that proved to be the prelude to a change in her manner. For, suddenly pausing, she turned to me and said, "'Mr. Clavering has left Riverdale, Mrs. Belden.' "'Left? Yes, my uncle commanded me to dismiss him, and I obeyed. The work dropped from my hands,' "'and my heart felt disappointment. "'Ah, then he knows of your engagement to Mr. Clavering. "'Yes, 
They had not been in the house five minutes before Eleanor told him. Then she knew. Yes, with a half-sigh. She could hardly help it. I was foolish enough to give her the cue in my first moment of joy and weakness. I did not think of the consequences. But I might have known. She is so conscientious. I do not call it conscientiousness to tell another secrets, I returned. That is because you are not Eleanor. Not having a reply for this, I said, and so your uncle did not regard your engagement with favor. Favor? Did I not tell you he would never allow me to marry an Englishman? He said he would sooner see me buried. And you yielded? Made no struggle? Let the hard, cruel man have his way? She was walking off to look again at that picture which had attracted her attention the time before, but at this word gave me one little sidelong look that was inexpressibly suggestive. I obeyed him when he commanded, if that is what you mean, and dismissed Mr. Clavering after having given him your word of honor to be his wife. Why not, when I found I could not keep my word? Then you have decided not to marry him. She did not reply at once, but lifted her face mechanically to the picture. My uncle would tell you that I decided to be governed wholly by his wishes, she responded, at last, with what I felt was self-scornful bitterness. Greatly disappointed, I burst into tears. Oh, Mary, I cried, oh, Mary, and instantly blushed, startled that I had called her by her first name. But she did not appear to notice. "'Have you any complaint to make?' she asked. "'Is it not my manifest duty to be governed by my uncle's wishes? "'Has he not brought me up from childhood, "'lavished every luxury upon me, "'made me all I am, "'even to the love of riches which he has instilled into my soul, "'with every gift he has thrown into my lap, "'every word he has dropped into my ear, "'since I was old enough to know what riches meant?' Is it for me now to turn my back upon fostering care so wise, beneficent, and free just because a man whom I have known some two weeks chances to offer me in exchange what he pleases to call his love? But, I feebly essayed, convinced perhaps by the tone of sarcasm in which this was uttered that she was not far from my way of thinking after all, if in two weeks you have learned to love this man, more than everything else, even the riches which make your uncle's favor a thing of such moment. Well, said she, what then? Why, then I would say, secure your happiness with the man of your choice. If you have to marry him in secret, trusting to your influence over your uncle to win the forgiveness he can never persistently deny. You should have seen the arch expression which stole across her face at that. "'Would it not be better?' she asked, creeping to my arms and laying her head on my shoulder. "'Would it not be better for me to make sure of that uncle's favor first, "'before undertaking the hazardous experiment of running away with a too ardent lover?' "'Struck by her manner, I lifted her face and looked at it. "'It was one amused smile. "'Oh, my darling,' said I, "'you have not then dismissed Mr. Clavering.' I have sent him away, she whispered demurely. But not without hope. She burst into a ringing laugh. Oh, you dear old Mama Hubbard, what a matchmaker you are, to be sure. 
you appear as much interested as if you were the lover yourself. But tell me, I urged. In a moment, her serious mood returned. He will wait for me, said she. The next day, I submitted to her the plan I had formed for her, clandestine intercourse with Mr. Clavering. It was for them both to assume names, she taking mine, as one less liable to provoke conjecture than a strange name, and he that of Leroy Robbins. The plan pleased her, and with the slight modification of a secret sign being used on the envelope to distinguish her letters from mine, it was at once adopted. And so it was... I took the fatal step that has involved me in all this trouble, with the gift of my name to this young girl, to use as she would, and sign what she would, I seemed to part with what was left me of judgment and discretion. Henceforth, I was only her scheming, planning, devoted slave, now copying the letters which she brought me, and enclosing them to the false name we had agreed upon, and now busying myself in devising ways to forward to her those which I received from him without risk of discovery. Hannah was the medium we employed, as Mary felt it would not be wise for her to come too often to my house. To this girl's charge, then, I gave such notes as I could not forward in any other way, secure in the reticence of her nature, as well as in her inability to read that these letters addressed to Mrs. Amy Belden would arrive at their proper destination without mishap. "'and I believe they always did. "'At all events, no difficulty that I ever heard of "'arose out of the use of this girl as a go-between. "'But a change was at hand. "'Mr. Clavering, who had left an invalid mother in England, "'was suddenly summoned home. "'He prepared to go, but flushed with love, "'distracted by doubts, smitten with the fear that, "'once withdrawn from the neighborhood of a woman so universally courted as Mary, he would stand small chance of retaining his position in her regard. He wrote to her, telling his fears, and asking her to marry him before he went. "'Make me your husband, and I will follow your wishes in all things,' he wrote. "'The certainty that you are mine will make parting possible. Without it, I cannot go. No, not if my mother should die without the comfort of saying good-bye to her only child. By some chance she was in my house when I brought this letter from the post office, and I shall never forget how she started when she read it. But from looking as if she had received an insult, she speedily settled down into a calm consideration of the subject, writing and delivering into my charge for copying a few lines in which she promised to accede to his request if he would agree to leave the public declaration of the marriage to her discretion and consent to bid her farewell at the door of the church or wherever the ceremony of marriage should take place, never to come into her presence again till such declaration had been made. Of course, this brought in a couple days the sure response, anything so you will be mine and Amy Belden's wits and powers of planning were all summoned into requisition for the second time, to devise how this matter could be arranged without subjecting the parties to the chance of detection. I found the thing very difficult. In the first place, it was essential that the marriage should come off within three days, Mr. Clavering having, upon the receipt of her letter, 
secured his passage upon a steamer that sailed on the following Saturday. And next, both he and Miss Leavenworth were too conspicuous in their personal appearance to make it at all possible for them to be secretly married anywhere within gossiping distance of this place. And yet it was desirable that the scene of the ceremony should not be too far away, or the time occupied in effecting the journey to and from the place would necessitate an absence from the hotel on the part of Miss Leavenworth, long enough to arouse the suspicions of Eleanor, something which Mary felt it wiser to avoid. Her uncle, I have forgotten to say, was not here, having gone away again shortly after the apparent dismissal of Mr. Clavering. Fairmont, then, was the only town I could think of which combined the two advantages of distance and accessibility. Although upon the railroad, it was an insignificant place, and had, what was better yet, a very obscure man for its clergyman, living, which was best of all, not ten rods from the depot. If they could meet there. Making inquiries, I found that it could be done, and all alive to the romance of the occasion, proceeded to plan the details. And now, I am coming to what might have caused the overthrow of the whole scheme. I allude to the detection on the part of Eleanor of the correspondence between Mary and Mr. Clavering. It happened thus. Hannah, who in her frequent visits to my house had grown very fond of my society, had come in to sit with me for a while one evening, She had not been in the house, however, more than ten minutes before there came a knock at the front door, and going to it, I saw Mary, as I supposed from the long cloak she wore, standing before me. Thinking she had come with a letter for Mr. Clavering, I grasped her arm and drew her into the hall, saying, "'Have you got it? I must post it tonight, or he will not receive it in time.' There I paused." For the panting creature I had by the arm turning upon me, I saw myself confronted by a stranger. "'You have made a mistake,' she cried. "'I am Eleanor Leavenworth, and I have come for my girl Hannah. Is she here?' I could only raise my hand in apprehension and point to the girl sitting in the corner of the room before her. Miss Leavenworth immediately turned back. "'Hannah, I want you,' said she, and would have left the house without another word— "'but I caught her by the arm. "'Oh, miss,' I began, "'but she gave me such a look I dropped her arm. "'I have nothing to say to you,' "'she cried in a low, thrilling voice. "'Do not detain me.' "'And, with a glance, "'to see if Hannah were following her, "'she went out. "'For an hour, "'I sat crouched on the stair "'just where she had left me. "'Then I went to bed, "'but I did not sleep a wink that night.' You can imagine, then, my wonder, when, with the first glow of the early morning light, Mary, looking more beautiful than ever, came running up the steps and into the room where I was, with the letter from Mr. Clavering trembling in her hand. Oh, I cried in my joy and relief, didn't she understand me, then? The gay look on Mary's face turned to one of reckless scorn. If you mean Eleanor, yes— she is duly initiated, Mama Hubbard, knows that I love Mr. Clavering and write to him. I couldn't keep it secret after the mistake you made last evening, so I did the next best thing, told her the truth. Not that you are about to be married. Certainly not. I don't believe in unnecessary communications. And 
"'You did not find her as angry as you expected. "'I will not say that. "'She was angry enough. "'And yet,' continued Mary, "'with a burst of self-scornful penitence, "'I will not call Eleanor's lofty indignation anger. "'She was grieved, Mama Hubbard, grieved. "'And with a laugh, "'which I believe was rather the result of her own relief "'than of any wish to reflect on her cousin, "'she threw her head on one side and eyed me, with a look which seemed to say, "'Do I plague you so very much, you dear old Mama Hubbard?' "'She did plague me, and I could not conceal it. "'And will she not tell her uncle?' I gasped. "'The naive expression on Mary's face quickly changed. "'No,' said she. "'I felt a heavy hand, hot with fever, lifted from my heart. "'And we can still go on?' "'She held out the letter for reply.' Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.